you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. Have you found yourself thinking that this earthquake isn't going to happen? I get that. Yes, we invented our own Dungeons and Dragons kind of journey for the first two episodes. But every scenario we've put you through so far is completely possible. How do we know? This. A 308-page document called The Shakeout Report. It's full of fun estimates like this. 1,800 people dead. Nearly 50,000 injured. 270,000 people out of their homes. About 20 million people without power. More than 200,000 people that experience a new mental health disorder. Anxiety, depression, PTSD. I did this from a feeling of a moral imperative. I could see people were going to die because they didn't know basic information, and I had information that could help them. And we had to do it in a way that they could use. There are a lot of other people who did that too. I mean, I didn't do this alone by a long shot. Lucy Jones and hundreds of other people worked on it for years. They published it back in 2008. From Thomas Jordan, director of the Southern California Earthquake Center, was this, quote, the springs on the San Andreas system have been wound very, very tight, and the Southern Andreas Fault in particular looks like it's locked, loaded, and ready to go. Frightening words, and every earthquake... I want to be clear. This is not a crystal ball. This earthquake could be a whole lot better or a whole lot worse. The report's based on the best information we have available. It's as close to a crystal ball as we can get. How likely is it that none of this happens? This will happen. There's no likelihood of it not happening. We are not stopping plate tectonics. The details may change, but the earthquake is 100% inevitable. Just give it enough time. I'm going to get to the story of this report. First, let's talk about how we know that a big one is coming. Let's go back. 1907, Greenland, middle of the night. Dark, freezing, wind blowing over fields of snow. Don't worry, an earthquake's not about to hit. Explorer Alfred Wegener is on an expedition with some other guys and his sled dogs. He's on the eastern coast, and it's brutal. One of the coldest years Greenland's ever had. After a long day, Wegner and his team stop for the night. They set up camp and they go to sleep. During the night, he heard a terrible commotion outside. Who was that? Grabbed his gun, just in time to see a polar bear charging the tent. He picked up the shotgun and got it up and shot the bear right through the face. Just in time to keep it from killing him. His notation in his diary for that day is a commotion in the night... The dogs got a good meal afterwards. This guy, this dog-loving, bear-killing, ice-terrain explorer, this total badass, served in the First World War and hated it, saying war is a waste of life and money. But this isn't why we know him. It's because of his theory about how the continents we know came to be. 
Remember when you were in elementary school and you learned about the supercontinent Pangaea? That's Wegener. He changed the way that we look at the Earth. Along came Alfred Wegener, and he wrote Alfred Wegener. Alfred Wegener versus the world. He brought all the different kinds of evidence together. Rare people that's just good at and interested in a lot of different things. His first love was doing science. Uh, his wife always said of him that uh, family life, however much he loved her and the children, that family life was just background music for his scientific work. This is Mott Green. Mott's the kind of guy who, when you try to make small talk about the weather, tells you about the air quality and then references Picasso's blue period. He's charming. He wrote the biography, Alfred Wegener, Science, Exploration, and the Theory of Continental Drift. I don't think he was a misanthrope, but he was an introvert. And uh, he liked being alone in his study. He never went out of his way to promote his own career the way people normally would. Wegener, who has a PhD in atmospheric science, he decides he's going to take a break from exploring. He starts working at a university in the south of Germany. It's the winter of 1911, his first day back in the office after the Christmas break. He gets back to his office before the spring semester begins, and his office mate tells him, Come into my office. I got this fabulous world atlas for Christmas. He and his office mate spent a whole day looking through the pictures in this atlas. And when they opened it to the middle, Wegener said, stop. And there was a picture of the two hemispheres of the Earth, one that has South America on it and one that has Africa on it. And he looked at it very closely. And he saw it that the coast of South America and the coast of Africa fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. But he saw something else. He saw that if you look at the depth data that was plotted on this map for the Atlantic Ocean, that the same outline for the continents are there 200 meters down and, and 4,000 meters down. And he immediately thought, so this is not an accident of sea level. This isn't just some odd coincidence. There's something going on here. Fegner sees land masses that were clearly connected but somehow pulled apart, the scientific community sees something totally different. They were convinced that the continents were moving, couldn't move, never moved. That at some point, they were connected by giant land bridges that sunk to the bottom of the sea. And the more he thought about it, the dumber it sounded. According to Wegener, a continent could no more sink to the bottom of the ocean than an ice cube could sink to the bottom of a glass of water. So he decides, I'm going to tell the world how the continents came to be, that they were one big piece, and then they drifted apart. Over the course of about three or four months, puts together a coherent argument, which he calls uh, the origin of continents. And then he's out. Wegener just mic drops this crazy new theory and is like, see ya, I'm going to go explore with my dogs. What he doesn't know is that as soon as this thing gets published, he is the laughingstock of the scientific community. He died at just 50 years old, caught in a blizzard doing what he loved, hanging with his dogs, exploring Greenland. It would be decades before he was vindicated. But he would be vindicated.
I'm Jacob Margolis, and this is The Big One, your survival guide. Episode 3, The Science. With this fellow scientist who sang... Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. I dreamt last night the moon was so bright it melted the world away and it wasn't alarming when I saw Prince Charming come into my bedroom and say I've been driving a taxi here in Washington for quite a few years. Every day I pass this corner a dozen times never even notice it. But every night when Prince takes me out for my evening walk I always stop when I reach this particular spot. Look over there at that house, where you see the lighted windows. A neighbor of mine lives there. Yep, Dwight D. Eisenhower, a man with the most important job in the world. For example, a convenient way to wrap ground beef patties is to place a sheet of transparent plastic, slightly larger than the patty, between each one. Okay. So fast forward to the late 1950s. Debates in the geologic community have been raging, and a teenager named Tanya Atwater is in high school. She had always wanted to be an artist and was going after that dream until she saw something that changed her life. Sputnik. Or as this guy calls it, Sputnik. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik, the first man-made satellite as it passed over New York earlier today. One of the places where the progress of the satellite... We suddenly thought, if science could do that, <laughs> we were so impressed they could put something in outer space. Science could do anything, you know, famines, wars, <laughs> could solve anything. And so we all changed whatever we were doing and went into science. So she looks for a great science school. And I went to Harvard and they said, oh, we don't take women. And she was like, well, that's super sexist. So she talked to a guy from Caltech. And he said, well, we don't take women. They just waste their educations. They get married and waste their educations. So MIT had been taking a, just a smattering of women for a long time, since the beginning, I guess. She was one of only 20 women in a class of 2,000 men. I asked one of my professors at MIT, you know, I told him about Caltech, and I asked him, and he said, well, we know that you're going to raise great children, because you'll have such a good education. Read, sons. 
So we think it's worth educating you because you'll, you'll educate your children well. <laughs> they were all clueless. To be a revolutionary, you have to know that you're right and they're wrong. You have to know it right in your soul. If you doubt, then they can get to you. And so I, I've thought about that a lot. That's the gift my parents really gave me, was just to know my own worth and that arbitrary rules that wouldn't let me do my own thing were arbitrary and stupid. <laughs> what was a big deal at the time was that scientists just figured out that Wegener was actually kind of right. The continents are moving. But the way that they do that is completely different than what he thought. The discovery was called plate tectonics. Enormous pieces of land that have somewhere to be, shifting all over Earth. But some of them are in each other's way. And they collide, almost like geological bumper cars. The discovery of plate tectonics also helped us understand the why. Why earthquakes happen. At, at the time, what did they know about the San Andreas? Well, in 1906, that huge earthquake in San Francisco, they saw the ground breaks and they could see it was a big line. Yeah, and it moved five meters. <laughs> Actually, there's a wooden frame house with big glass windows and its, its path coming up to it, and the path was offset from the porch, <laughs> way offset. Like 16 feet. Like suddenly your driveway is someone else's driveway. And the, and the house was fine. So once the bigger picture was coming into focus, they said, you know, that, that, that if there's going to be a plate boundary on the land, this has got to be one. And it is. San Andreas is the biggest fault in California, splitting it from Baja to San Francisco. It's insane. And before 1906, we didn't know it was there. So what you have to understand is that the continents are not the plates. The continents sit on top of the plates. In fact, two of these plates meet right underneath California, the North American and the Pacific. And when they come together, they form the San Andreas. And it was huge to identify this plate boundary. We could see it. We already knew there were a bunch of these things on the ocean floor, but now, now we could see one. This gave us a chance to figure out a whole bunch of other stuff. How old are these plates? How fast are they moving? And Tanya wanted to answer those questions, specifically about the San Andreas. There was a guy at Stanford, Bill Dickinson, who ran these meetings, and he had a meeting saying, you know, the San Andreas, we should have a meeting and talk about it. So Dickinson called this meeting, and he always included a bunch of students. And the first thing Bill Dickinson said was, be wild. They were looking for evidence that the Earth was moving. That after years and years of these two plates shifting, what used to be over here is now over there. No joke, LA used to be roughly where San Diego is today. It took like forever, but they did move. They needed evidence of this so they could figure out how fast the plates are moving. There was one group of these students <laughs> from Berkeley and their wild professor who stood up and they showed an offset of these very distinct lavas that are in the northern Mojave. And on the other side, at the Pinnacles, which is near Salinas, 
California, just on the other side of the fault. The same rocks are there. They're very distinct rocks, exactly the same age, 23 million years. And just, it'd be really hard to convince anybody they weren't the same. And we, we were sitting up in the back going, yay, oh. Tanya was blown away by how far the rocks had moved and how fast the fault was moving. The earthquake problem is a lot worse if it's fast. Faster means more earthquakes. Over the next decade, she answered both questions. How fast is the San Andreas moving? And how old is it? She wrote about it for a book on the history of plate tectonics. It is a wondrous thing to have the random facts in one's head suddenly fall into the slots of an orderly framework. It's like an explosion inside, and that is what I often felt happened to me and to others as we were working out and talking out the geometry of Western U.S. I took my ideas to John Krull at UCSB. One Thanksgiving day, I crept in feeling very self-conscious and embarrassed that I was trying to tell him about land geology starting from ocean geology using paper and scissors. <laughs> and he was the, the god of the San Andreas at the time. He was very patient with my long bumbling, but near the end he got terribly excited and I could feel the explosion in his head. He suddenly stopped me and rushed into the other room to show me a map of when and where he had evidence of activity on the San Andreas system. The predicted pattern was all right there. This woman, who wasn't allowed to study science at Harvard or Caltech, and was belittled at MIT, she figured out how the landscape of the Western U.S. came to be. Because of Tanya Atwater, we know that the San Andreas is young and that it's moving fast. What we didn't know was when the next big one would hit. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com slash sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. The first documented account of a quake in Southern California is from 1769 by Spanish explorer Gaspar de Portola. He and a bunch of other guys were on an expedition walking north through the state. Nearly a hundred years later, in 1857, that's when LA had its last big one. Since the city was so new, only two people died. Then there was the 1906 big one that hit San Francisco. It lasted about a minute, but the fires that broke out went on to burn nearly 500 city blocks killing more than 3,000 people. Very well documented. If an earthquake hadn't been documented, there was basically no way for us to know about it. No way to figure out the pattern of how often they'd happened. Meaning, we didn't know if a big one on the San Andreas Fault was right around the corner. And this 
is where Carrie C. comes in. We are certainly within the window of when that earthquake is going to happen. I'd be very surprised if it didn't happen within the lifetime of children in primary school today. This guy figured out the pattern. March of 1970, I was a, I was a, a junior at UC Riverside. That, that year, the, the, the local regional meeting of the Geological Society of America was at UC Riverside. And so me and all the other students were asked to be free volunteer labor to help register the, fa- register the professors who were coming. Rock stars of the field were there, like the guy that invented the Richter scale, like the whole magnitude of an earthquake thing. Oh, my God. I mean, I just about melted when he walked up. I thought, oh, my God, you know, Charlie Richter, are you kidding me? I'm signing him up for this meeting. And so, so he signs in, you know, like frumpy with his coat that isn't, doesn't fit him and, and, uh, and so on. T- classic professor. C's sitting in on one of the talks, and some of the researchers mention a problem they've run into near San Francisco. The city of Fremont wanted to build a new civic center, but the Hayward Fault runs right through the place. And you really don't want to build a civic center right on top of a big fault. Because when an earthquake hits, and the two sides of the fault go in opposite directions, they can tear a building in half. Like the house in 1906 that Tanya mentioned. The problem was, they couldn't tell exactly where the fault was. So, they didn't know where to build. The solution they came up with was to dig. And they did. They knew they'd found the fault when they came across these layers of dirt that had built up over thousands and thousands of years. Like, imagine a layer cake, but made of earth. But some of the layers were broken, offset. Like someone interrupted the sheets of cake. Those interruptions were earthquakes. Developers had their answer about where the fault was. But when Carrie hears about this, he takes it to the next level. And as I was sitting there in the audience, I thought, well, that's not all you could do with this. You know, you, you couldn't just locate the fault. You could actually use the layers and radiocarbon dating to tell when the earthquakes happened. When he was only in his early 20s, Kerry C. invented the field of paleoseismology. What were you doing when you were that young? Once you know how often they happen on a fault, you can figure out how long you have until the next big one hits. Years later, Kerry makes his way out to the San Andreas Fault with a shovel and starts digging for answers. What was exciting was that the geologist said that the layers there were inner beds of, of nice, you know, yellowish tan sands, river sands and gravels with peat layers, black, beautiful peat layers. So it'd be, it'd be like a layer cake. So I thought, that's exciting. That's just what I'm looking for. Now, peat layers can be dated with carbon and if it's accumulating at the right rate, I can get a slip rate on the fault. So I drive down there, first chance I get, take my shovel, I see one of the peat layers, I start scraping it off to expose it all the way along, and I make a scrape, and it's broken, and it's, it drops down about a half meter. So I collect a sample of peat from the top, a sample of peat from the 10 meter deep gorge down below, I send them off the radiocarbon lab, and, and suddenly I realize, I've got a site where I can date earthquakes, individual earthquakes. When you're, when you're a performer in a musical group, it's often the case that when you do an excellent performance in front of a good crowd, you literally feel a chill going up your spine. I've only had that twice in my life as a geologist. And one of them was when I took that spade shovel and, and I cut away some of the, the, the 
slough the talus on the side and I saw that fault breaking the sediments. So I knew I'd found something extraordinary. So in the late 1980s, we finally had our pattern. We knew how often the monster lashes out. And the answer isn't pretty. It's been 161 years since the last big one. According to C's research, they occur every 45 to 230 years. That means we're in the window. It could hit any second now. Disaster experts have a line they often use. All disasters are terrible. That's why they call them disasters. But earthquakes are the least polite. They don't tell you when they're coming to town or just how catastrophic they're going to be. And that's mostly true. Except that we do know a big one is coming. There's just no time and date on the RSVP. So what does a region do when they find out they're in the sweet spot for a big one? That millions of people's lives could be changed forever by a major quake? Pretty much nothing. But Lucy Jones is trying to change that. In your opinion, your expert opinion, we are 150 years overdue for a big earthquake in Southern California. Is that true? Right. Just the San Andreas Fault. Our guest San today Andreas is Dr. Fault. Lucy okay. Jones. In Mexico. We talked to Dr. Lucy Jones here at Caltech this morning. She no says way. this is And we're happy to have Dr. Lucy Jones here to discuss this. Thank you so much for joining us again. Love to see you. Wonderful to be you here. You want to reform the building code, right? Yes, I do. Uh, I would like to see us build buildings to be used and not just to crawl out alive. Because Dead, after we crawl but, out alive... Uh, 300,000 buildings badly damaged. Okay. Yes. So good to have you here. <laughs> yeah. uh, Just a joy. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I, I actually think that the more we understand, uh, the, the better off we'll be. Uh, so what are the biggest misconceptions about Fast forward to 2002. Lucy gets tapped to serve on California's Seismic Safety Commission, the group that's supposed to keep the state safe when the big one hits. It's stacked with a bunch of important people. First responders, city leaders, city officials, engineers, and Lucy's listening to them talk, and she realizes something that really scares her. To her, it seems like many of them don't understand the basics of a big one on the San Andreas. When the fault moves... It actually moves at the surface. The reason we can map it is because it, had, it comes to the surface in each of the big earthquakes, and therefore everything crossing the fault is broken too. That was not known. It was clear that that was not known. Um, Who, how could you tell it was not known? Well, I mean, they were surprised as I talk about it. And they, well, how do you know where the fault's going to break? Well, because that's what mapping it, you know, how do you know where, where the pipeline's going to break? Because this is where it crosses the fault. Well, so what? You know, and the idea that the fault is, that's emotion on the fault that offsets things, that causes the shaking, they, they didn't realize that that was true. They didn't realize that power lines, gas lines, water lines, all of which run over the fault, could break when the earth shifts. These are the people who are making the decisions at the government level about what should we be doing to get ready for this, and there is information they could be using that wasn't being understood. So that was part for me was just going, there's really basic stuff that we need to get through to them and how do we do it? And clearly what we've been talking about so far hadn't been doing it. Not long after, USGS comes to her and they ask her to write a proposal all about the impact of a big quake on Southern California. So Lucy says, okay, she puts it together thinks it's going to take years for them to get any money. 
And then in 2005, Katrina hits. With Katrina, shouldn't Americans be concerned that their government isn't prepared to respond to another disaster or even a terrorist attack? Mm. Uh, you know, Katrina uh, exposed serious problems in our response capability at all levels of government. And to the extent that the federal government uh, didn't fully do its job right, I take responsibility. I want to know what went right and what went wrong. I want to know how to better cooperate with state and local government. To be able to answer that very question that you asked, are we capable of dealing with a severe attack or another severe storm? And, it's, and that's a, a very important question. And it's in our national interest that we find out exactly what went on and and uh, so that we can better respond. And suddenly, Lucy gets her funding. That proposal got funded in the first year that it was put through, which was a shock to absolutely everyone. And then I got asked to lead the project for Southern California. I'm like, oh. Um, so that's the beginning that led to the shakeout. So Lucy assembles a crack team of scientists and experts, over 300 people to dig into what it could all mean for Southern California. Our most important word was plausible. We are not saying this is the earthquake. We are saying this is a plausible earthquake. If this happens, nobody will be surprised. 45,000 people will need to be saved. People will be trapped in elevators. There could be 100,000 landslides. $50 billion lost in economic activity. By the end of the first week, when reality sets in, that's when people start seriously drinking. Yes, they accounted for that too. Some of what they found out shocks even the experts, like the fires. We all know that the really big earthquakes in urban areas have caused lots of fires. But we, we hired this guy, Charlie Scothern, who's a professor at the University of Kyoto at that point, to do the modeling and say, what is, how many fires will be set off? How will they spread? And his result was that the fires doubled the losses, that we cause as much economic damage and kill as many people through super conflagrations that form as the fires sweep through the city. And it was really terrifying. And in fact, it was so terrifying, one of the lead scientists was like, this can't be true. I don't believe this. This is ridiculous. It can't be that extreme. And by the time we got done, the fire chiefs were saying, if anything, this is an underestimate. So we, the, the model is, the fires are horrific in the model. And we got to specify the weather for the shakeout, and we made it a cool, calm day. If we have Santa Ana's when the earthquake actually hits, it will be much worse than we modeled. So do you think that this work will save lives? Yes. I sincerely believe that what we've done with shakeout is, has already led to enough changes that there are people who will not die in the earthquake because of what we've done. There are buildings that are, you know, 4,000 buildings are already retrofitted in L.A. The, the laws are being passed in other cities. The water system's being repaired. There's a, you know, a whole different level of planning going on about water. And all of those are going to be reducing lives lost but also reducing the economic distress, which is its own pain to a lot of people. Ten years after the ShakeOut report, plenty of the problems highlighted are still major problems. 
sewage, for example. Five to 10 million gallons are expected to flood city streets every hour when pipes break. The rest of it will probably get sent into creeks. It's gonna create a huge biohazard. Gas lines that might explode, the huge crater that might result. The ShakeOut report recommended we replace a bunch of the pipes. We haven't. The additional emergency responders we need to fight the 1,600 fires that could break out. We still don't have enough. Do you think we're ready? Oh, no, we're not ready. Uh, I'm going to be doing this till the earthquake happens. <laughs> Hopefully I live to see that. Um, it's, uh, we are much more ready than we were, but there's a lot more that still needs to be done. There is good news. A lot of the places we talk to, including state, federal, and local governments, have deep, comprehensive plans on how to respond. We know what to do. We've just decided what our priorities are. We're gonna dive much deeper into that later. On our next episode, we're gonna switch back to you, our hero. You're gonna wake up to a world that's not nearly as strong as you were led to believe, and you're gonna need help. After the credits, three things you need to know to survive. Now for my favorite part of the show, credits. Misha Youssef is our lead producer. Arwen Champion Nix is our executive producer. Mary Knopf is our assistant producer. Megan Garvey is our editor. Our music's by Andy Clausen. Our engineers, we've got to toy with those levels all day, are Sean Corey Campbell and Valentina Rivera. Our artwork is by Stephanie Kraft. This episode was written and reported by me, Jacob Margolis, as well as Arwen Nix. Alex Laughlin handles all things marketing and Thank you to James Kim for his stash of forks. Thanks to Lynn Sykes and to the Amoeba people for letting us use their Alfred Wegener song. Go check them out on Spotify. They have a ton of cool sciencey music. I'm your host, Jacob Margolis. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Hey, big one listener. It's me, Misha. You know what time it is when you hear my voice. It's time for some tips. And I know we talked about history and science in this episode, but we are not going to let you get away without some practical tips. So here goes. Number one, we created this amazing data tool. And by we, I mean our senior data reporter, Dana Amahir. She created this tool to show you where you are in relation to known faults. So scientists don't know about all the faults. And like Northridge, there might be some that we won't know about until an earthquake happens on them. But you can find out which ones you're close to 
Number two, use that same data tool to find out if you're in a liquefaction zone. Liquefaction sounds really scary, but it's not a literal sinkhole forming beneath your house. It's when the paved streets crack open because of strong shaking and water starts to come up because of the soil that's underneath your house. It won't necessarily cause a sinkhole or quicksand. What you need to know is what kind of soil your house is located on. So find out using this tool if you're in a liquefaction zone and then confirm with your landlord or look at records of your house if you own your home. Number three, make a little kit for your car. We've talked a lot about having supplies at home like water and food, but you may be in your car when the earthquake hits or you may need to leave and not have much time to pack things up. So in that case, having a flashlight, a pair of shoes, some extra food, water, and a printed out map can be extremely helpful. That's it for tips. 